Hi, my name is Jacob Collins Brown, and this is UKBF Stories, where we are telling the story of small businesses across the UK and shining a spotlight on their journey. Hi, I'm Richard Osborne. I'm here today with Dwayne Jackson, founder of Cashflow. Welcome, Dwayne. Thank, Thank you. you for spending time with us today. In your own words, how did your journey begin? Um, sort of give us a run through some of your younger years to the point where really um, you started to think about business. Yeah. So, so where I grew up, I never knew anyone running a business and it, it wasn't, you hear these stories of entrepreneurs that they were at the tuck shop making money at school and, and they were born entrepreneurs. That, that definitely wasn't me, I don't think. Um, so I grew up largely in children's homes in the east end of London. Um, ended up in prison at 20 in the US and then a five-year sentence over here. Um, I get asked how I fell into crime. I didn't fall into crime. I grew up around it. And actually for a long time, I was the exception, if you like, in, in my peers and the one that wasn't that involved with some of the, the dodgy dealings that were going on. Um, and it was when I was finishing my prison sentence at Ford that we had someone from the Prince's Trust come in and talk about what they do and uh, what's called the Enterprise Programme. And it wasn't, I, I, I think genuinely up until that point, I'd assumed, I hadn't given much thought, but I think I'd assumed that if you want to start a business, you need a license. And you probably need to have gone to Oxford or, or Cambridge to, to, to get that license. And it was only like, oh, so I can start a business if I want to? And it's just a matter of filling in this form and having the idea and, okay. So that was, that was an eye-opener for me. Well, it's probably fair to say that the Prince's Trust identify that. Um, by working with people who are um, in prison, um, may have criminal records, and it's the people who undertake, you know, get involved in crime. Mm -hmm. Quite, you know, many of them can be quite entrepreneurial. Yeah, I think it's not necessarily they've got involved in crime. I think you you find a lot of people that get involved in crime come from an underprivileged background, yeah. and when you're from that background, you've you sometimes feel like you've got a lot to prove uh, as one thing, but also you're very driven to come out of the situation you're in and you're growing up, and you know that yourself from your background, right? If, if you come from that place, you have a lot of um, drive and energy and, and ambition to not stay in that place. Yeah. So when you, um, as you was reaching the end of your sentence, you had spoken that the Prince's Trust had come out and speak to you, the before then or around about that sort of time you did have an opportunity for um an involvement in some other businesses um and I, uh, you had somebody you had potentially some equity in a business mm -hmm. as well so how did all that come together and the decision to decide to start your own business happen yeah so i was initially arrested in the states um and a former employer bowed me out um so the DEA said I'd be on bail for a year before I had to face trial. So he said, look, I'll bail you out. Um, I can't, don't know what's going to happen in a year when you stand trial, but between now and then, the conditions are that you work for me um, and, and live with him. So he supported me for that year that I was there. He couldn't afford to pay me a salary. Um, so just before I went to, uh, to trial, and when we knew I was going away for possibly 10 years, he said, look, I want to give you a percentage of the company. So when you get out, you've got something to look forward to. And also in lieu of the fact that I wasn't able to pay you a salary. Um, so that's what I was, thought I was coming out to was a, a job and a share of this company that 
he ran he done all the business side of things. I just done a lot of the, the techie work. But at Ford, where you have a lot of um, solicitors, ex-cops, um, yeah. you, you've got a different class of criminal there. <laughs> yeah. So someone there had a look at the agreement I had, which I now know is an option agreement. I didn't know at the time um, what that was. Um, so they looked and said, well, this isn't really worth anything because if you ever leave the company in the future, you leave your job, you forfeit your shares. Um, so I went back to Ben and said, look, I've been told this. And he said, oh, well, yeah, that kind of is the case. The solicitors made me do it. I'll get it changed. Um, I was getting closer and closer to my release date um, and it wasn't getting changed. And I was quite adamant, well, no, I need to change when I get out or I'm not going to come and work for you. Um, he didn't change it. So I said, okay, well, I'm good. And in that period, the Prince's Trust came and I thought, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing then. Yeah. Um, which I think was a shock to him. In fact, he said, look, you, you'll end up homeless, knocking on my door, asking for somewhere to live. And ironically, he became one of my first customers. Um, I was giving him a discount, but he was still complaining it was too expensive. Yeah. The and I, I think that was key one, wasn't it? That the Princess Trust helped you start. Yes. Yeah, so, so I I started as a just a one man web developer. So that's what I used to do for this guy was sort of web development type stuff. Yeah. Um, so my, selling my time by the hour um, as a, a sole trader essentially, and met other Princess Trust businesses. And there was one specific guy, Satiris, um, and he and I had a lot of mutual clients. So we did a lot of SEO. So I do web development. He'd do the SEO. Another guy when you called Milton would do the design. So we had a lot of mutual clients, and we decided to to join together. Um, we invited Milton, and maybe had better sense than me because he's like, "No oh, thanks, I'll stay independent." <laughs> but Satiris and I joined up, and that's where Key One came from. Yeah, and I, I remember in the early days, um, you as Key One joining UKBF, mm -hmm. and um, I think you were uh, even a moderator on UKBF yeah. at that time. God, yeah, what things I let loose in those <laughs> days. <laughs> The uh, the power, <laughs> the power. Yeah. <laughs> How far between? Because at some point um, you met Lord Young mm -hmm. and he got involved, and at some point cash flow, the idea of cash flow came about. So, what's the timeline? How did all those? Yeah. Go? So I, I joined forces with Satiris. We started Key One, and through a Prince's Trust, it wasn't really a course. It was more that they'd put on regular talks, networking events. And they had someone that pointed out the difference between a product business and a service business. And at that point, I was still selling my time by the hour through the company um, and realized that actually to make some serious money, you need to be able to make money in your sleep, which means you need to be selling a product because there's only so many hours you can sell in the day. Um, you could scale it up um, with lots of other consultants and you're selling their time and getting a cut of it. But it seemed like selling a product was the right way to go about things. So we were brainstorming, trying to come up with some products, and I wish I kept the notes because we had five or six different ideas. And one of them was this bit of software, in quotes, that I built to manage our invoicing. Maybe we could make that into a product for other people to use. Um, and that's what became Cashflow. It almost became Lollymate was the name we came up with. <laughs> I saw and, that. Yeah, someone pointed out, yeah, that's not going to work. Uh, I yeah. think that was, the, uh, from what I remember, the lady from the Princess Yeah, Trust Rachel, who, Rachel yeah. Rickards, yeah. yeah. Probably I still remember being in the pub with her and uh, yeah, very, very slightly pointing out, yes, good idea, but you probably need to give the name a bit more thought. Uh, I think she was on to a winner with that mm. one. Yeah. No offence, Lolly Mate sounds great. Yeah. But... <laughs> so the, you had a, you'd built a something yourself to mm -hmm. solve a problem within your own business. Yeah. Um, and it was just an easier 
I'm putting words in your mouth here, but an easier way to manage your invoicing and man, you know the money in and out. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the, the idea came about thinking this must be of use to some other businesses. The I'm bringing a, a UKBF because I'm wearing the badge here. Mm-hmm. Then onto that. Um, back in the day as well, then the early days, I remember you asking a few questions and running a few surveys on UKBF about the the issues people were experiencing using traditional software um, within there. And I read that you, you basically gave it away for free to a number of businesses yep. to, gave, to build up that feel, feedback and build the product. Um, how valuable was that? Incredibly, because, I mean, a lot of this has been written about right by people much more articulate than me since in terms of building software as a service businesses, but you need to do things early on that won't scale, that won't work when you're, you're a big business. If you try and do things on day one like you're a big business, they're not going to work. Um, likewise, if you try and do things when you're bigger than you've done when you started, it won't work. Once we were at 15,000 customers, we weren't giving it away for free, and I wasn't personally calling every customer and speaking to them. But in the early days, yeah, getting people to, to use the software for free and, and then getting feedback on what to, to add to it really helped us mature the product. But also asking them, what would you pay for it, with the caveat that you will never have to pay for it. Because if you say, right, you've got it for free now, I'm going to start charging you next year, what will you pay for it? They're going to tell you one pound. Yeah. Whereas if you say, look, you've got it for free for the rest of your life, what is it worth to you? You, you get a more honest answer. The concept of cloud computing hadn't even been, I mean, it's common, everybody does cloud computing, Microsoft, everybody does monthly subscriptions, mm-hmm. was pretty groundbreaking back, back then. Uh, how, when you were speaking to people out in the market, or whether it people in the Prince's Trust, how was it perceived, or even, you know, what did people think of that concept then? Yeah, I know it, it was always seen as really risky, and, and are people really going to trust their accounting data to, well, we didn't have the terms like cloud or SaaS and they just weren't around. I remember writing a blog post about what is this thing going to be called? And I think I suggested we call it web apps or something like that, which didn't really <laughs> click. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a, a, a different model and I should claim this great foresight, right? But that wasn't the case. It was because I developed for the web rather than the desktop. So for me, it was much easier to throw together a website that did this um, and, and there was an access database behind it. So it wasn't without getting too geeky stuff that would work well today. Um, more stumbled into that model, if you like. But also from a pricing perspective, you've got to remember back then, if you wanted to buy accounting software, you would pay Sage 600 quid for this product. Yeah. Um, whereas we were charging 15 quid a month. But you also, some interesting stuff came out of that model, which still applies today. So if you go back to the Sage example, you've bought the product, Sage have got their money. Mm. It is now in their interest to get more money out of you sell you a support contract. So if they make money from selling your support contract, it's not in their interest to make the software easy. Whereas now it's very established with the software as a service model, you include support with the monthly subscription. So if your customers are getting in touch with questions, it's a cost to you rather than a sales opportunity to you. Therefore, you make your product really intuitive and you make the self-help really easy. So you have different um, incentives as a a SaaS business than you did as a desktop software company. this isn't, I've not seen this written down anywhere, but it's something that you actually said to me oh, many years ago. I was, I was at the cash flow offices and you said that 
if we need to write a, a user manual for our software, then we've done it wrong. Uh, I can't remember the exact phrase you used, but I remember that being your method methodology, if I can say that word, at the time yeah. was it has to the software has to be so easy to use that it's not going to need a manual. Exactly, it needs to be intuitive. Um, so since going into payroll software, I, I, I probably would backtrack on that comment because there is some stuff where you do need to, to write it up and explain it. But yeah, as a first step, you want somebody to be able to work out just from looking at the screen they're on what it is they need to do next and not have to go looking at a manual. And, and even more so if they then have to get in touch with the company to ask. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, a failure in your, your, your UX, potentially. Yeah. So you met Lord Young. Mm -hmm. and he became uh, a mentor and ultimately an investor into the business. This is something which many, particularly small business owners, might have a, a fear of or a, a, an aversion to having another shareholder in the company, uh, especially one who's not in the office every day doing the work alongside you. Mm -hmm. How useful was it to have somebody in that position as a, effectively a non-exec director? Yeah, I mean, the thing with that relationship was it came about organically. I wasn't actively looking for a mentor. We never had a conversation where we agreed, okay, you're my mentor and I'm your mentee. Um, he just said, look, what you're doing is interesting uh, as a business. Uh, I like you as a person. I'd, I'd like to offer you some help um, in the form of a, an investment in the business. And off the back of that, because he was an investor, I would ask him questions. So because of that, the mentor-mentee relationship emerged. But he is somebody of immense experience, um, and I was early 20s running my first business on my own. Um, so in the intervening years, Tiris had realized this wasn't going to work for him and had gone off, so I was on my own running the business. So having somebody just as a sounding board that you can bounce ideas off and get feedback and someone to be honest with you about, well, no, that's not going to work or, or have you thought of it this way, um, was incredibly useful to have. Yeah. There was a particular, you just sort of touched on it just then, a point in time where the relationship with Lord Young changed significantly from somebody you sort of had a bit of an email phone conversation to where he actually put his name to the brand. Um, and that um, I'll, I'll refer to myself. So I'll, the the I've got two investors into my own business, and at the point where they invested, my wife had fifty. My wife and I had fifty fifty shares in the business because that's the way that small businesses are structured, and the accountant advised you to. That was a no no, mm -hmm. and I had to structure the business where it literally they were the, my investors dealing with myself. And it seems like you went through a similar sort of transition yeah i mean it 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 grew over time certainly because early on it was just me um i was still running key one as a web development business he put some money in to help me focus on building cash flow but i still had to run key one because that was paying the bills um but gradually it got to the point where cash flow grew enough that it could cover the cost i could step away from the key one stuff um, and focus purely on that and and, and grow that as a as the main focus, maybe. And I still remember when we started answering the phones as cash flow rather than key one. Yeah, I say we, it's just sort of yeah. me and I think two other people, maybe. The um, and that must have been quite a buzz point where the yeah definitely the changes. Yeah, because you could see. So with key one, it was fine. It was great. It ticked over, and we could uh, add more 
do more work, maybe have more hosts and clients. With cash flow, there's a very clear path of you just keep piling on more users and you make more money. So I remember we were making £200 a month, I think, when Lord John got involved and then it went up to two grand and ended up in hundreds of thousands a month. And the one of the things that, for me, from the outside looking back on, there was a key moment where you're a much braver person than me doing this. Uh, there's a term guerrilla marketing yeah. that gets bounded around. And the it felt like a um, David and Goliath situation where cash flow was going all guns at Sage. Mm -hmm. And the... How did, I mean, even the, the idea to do that come from and that kind of marketing strategy, just, just even the concept of it, how do you even come up with that? Yeah, I mean, that was incredibly successful for us in terms of the, the PR we got. And if, if we could convert even half of the mindshare we had in sort of 2008, it probably was into customers, yeah. we'd have made a lot of money very quickly because, <laughs> yeah, we got a very high profile that was not deserved. But that came about. Really, I mean, I could argue they started it. So, so they got in touch. So both they and QuickBooks got in touch and said, right, you've got price and comparison on your website. Um, and it's just sort of some solicitor there. No one had heard of us, but they'd done a search and their name had come up. QuickBooks and Sage on our website as a compar comparable product. Mm. And we're trying to show why we're cheaper and better. Yeah. Um, and Which is course, common practice today. Isn't it? Yeah, but I'd been a bit cheeky and probably compared myself to the more expensive products that wasn't directly comparable. And the guys at QuickBooks <laughs> said, no, and I looked and said, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right, and changed it. And the guys at Sage wanted two or three things changed, and I looked and was like, actually, yeah, I'll change that one. But then the other two, that's a legit comparison, I'm not changing that. And they said, well, if you don't, compare, if you don't change it, we'll sue. And I just thought, that's just not fair. And because of that, it, it, it all went from there, and I sort of <laughs> kicked back to them and, and took the opportunity and thought, hang on a minute, we're this tiny little company, and they're threatening to sue us this massive company and that I thought was newsworthy and managed to get some PR off the back of it and I think we realised hang on a minute this is free market and free publicity and yeah milked it for what it was worth for, for a period of time. So whilst I've got you here are you running your own or have a keen interest in small business then UKBF is here for you. Visit ukbf.co.uk and become part of our vibrant community to meet other like-minded business owners and tap into a wealth of expertise and experience to help your business thrive. Now, back to the story. You didn't, but you didn't just stop there because I, I remember yeah. from looking from the outside. <laughs> You're going to say about the bonfire, right? Uh, there was the bonfire. There was uh, popping onto their stand at trade shows. Yeah. Yeah. There was um, I enjoyed slips it, that's into the sure. media, uh, posts on UK business forums about um, them going on acquisition. It was a, it was quite um, a lot. Yeah. And how? Um, so there were emails at that time going around at board level at Sage that I've I've since heard about saying, "What the hell do we do about this guy?" Um, because yeah. and by the time they decided how to respond to what I'd done over there, I'd moved on from that. Was doing something else over there because they're such a big company. It took so long to respond and react um, and someone told me you should just buy him um, and obviously they didn't but yeah that's, that was the advice they got but they did try yeah because the other part of it was I'd read or someone has said to me at some point if you want to get acquired by a big business the thing to do is be a fool in your side in their side and they'll buy you just to get you out of the way so I think there's a part of that going on in my head that'll be a, an annoyance to them 
but probably got a bit carried away with it and, and enjoyed it a bit too much. The, well, it didn't seem to do any harm. No, no, it worked well. No. You know, other than they had, later on when I did come to actually try and sell the business, I was convinced they'd buy us and sent them uh, the memorandum of information, as it's called, yeah. and they replied within minutes saying, no thanks, not interested. So, oh, <laughs> crap, what do I do now? <laughs> so even more recently, uh, being on a call with somebody that, that wanted to make sure that I was aware, that they were aware of my background and that they were giving me an opportunity here. And this is like after I've made tens of millions of pounds from business yeah. and didn't particularly need these guys as a client and, and actually was working really well with them already and they were very dependent on the product I'd built. But yeah, they're, they're, I think it's their marketing director or their COO was adamant he wanted to call with me and he was kind of trying to work me out whether he could trust me um, but was very um, open about that was what he was doing. I just thought, what's what? Um, but even in the early days of cash flow, yeah, so for a long time nobody knew. I wasn't open about it. I'm very open about it now. But I remember um, various PR firms I'd worked with. One of the first thing I'd have to brief them on was, by the way, I have this in my past. It might come out at some point. Um, and the way that ended up coming out ties in nicely with the Sage story yeah. because one day in 2010, maybe, if you opened up the Times on the City Gossip um, section, there was a story there that said, um, say, it's about Sage gunning for their small competitor cash flow. And it said that the founder's a very colourful character. Uh, and then went into my whole past about uh, being convicted for drug trafficking and 6,000 ecstasy tablets at Atlanta Airport. And I remember having a meeting that day, funnily enough, with um, someone from the Prince's Trust and Sean Fellon, who had just sold Multimap to Microsoft, I think, uh, trying to raise some money for the Prince's Trust from him. And I had the time. I said, John, have a look at this. And he said, yeah, I've seen it already. He said, it's disgusting that Sage would stoop this low. And the way it was written was very much that Sage had planted this story there. And of course, Sage hadn't planned the story that API guy had. He decided, <laughs> look, let's use this to our advantage. Accounting's a very dull industry. Let's make it more interesting by putting your background out of Let's own it rather than be worried about it. And he had done it in such a way that it looked like Sage had done the dirty, if you like, and, and dished the dirt on me. So I got a lot of messages over the, sort of the next week or so about, look, we're not holding this against you and well done you kind of thing and aren't Sage out of order for, for posting it. <laughs> so that's when it became public. And for me at least, the upsides in terms of the the um, the ability to stand out from the crowd because of that backstory has far outweighed any downside of that being public. Um, we've had customers or potential customers said, no, we don't want to deal with you. Um, the... Um so cash flow continued to grow and grow. Mm -hmm. um, you had a really um, interesting marketing strategy and a lot of attention um, being shown. And then you had a couple of different opportunities, people knocking at the door to sell, not, um, and they didn't see the way all the way through, but led to you selling a stake in cash flow potential. Mm -hmm. How did yeah. that happen? What happened so Really early days, um, so the turnover must have been, it may have been in the 10,000 10, a month, but certainly not much more than that. Had an approach, um, who happened to be Mike Jackson, uh, who runs an, uh, a VC, oh, it's not a, v, a VCT, um, Venture Capital Trust, called Elder Street. But in a previous life, he'd been chairman of Sage, funnily enough, so was aware of the business. He made me an offer. So I'd, I'd met him again at a Prince's Trust dinner, small dinner, trying to do some fundraising. 
his PA got in touch and said, oh, Mike would like to have a chat with you. Well, okay. So I went to see him, not knowing what to expect. I was told I would just find his unit business interesting. And I can bait this because it was whenever the first iPhone came out. Because they had the first <laughs> iPhone, I was like, wow. Um, but he says to me, um, so he asked me a few questions, very matter-of-fact, very direct and, and very numbers-focused. And I answered the questions about where we were, how many customers we had. And he said, right, I'll, I'll give you a million pounds for the business. And I was completely thrown. Like, Sorry? The business. Yeah, he wanted to buy the business for a million pounds. And I hadn't even thought what it might be worth, but it was a million pounds. Um, and it completely took me by surprise. And I said, um, well, we're not for sale. And he said, well, everything's for sale. It's just a question of how much. I was like, well, we're not for sale. He goes, all right, two million. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I said, look, if you're serious, I have to speak to Lord Jung, who by this point was my, my co-shareholder. Um, and I'll get back to you. He's like, all right. Um, actually, no. So I, I'd said, well... I'd want to make so more than a million pounds each, assuming me and Lord John were 50-50, so two million um, tax. He said, well, yeah, 2.3, that'll cover your tax. So I had an offer of 2.3 million. Went to Lord John and said, look, I've had this offer. And he said, okay. I said, well, it's a great offer, isn't it? He said, it's an okay offer. I said, look, I'll be a millionaire if I do this. And he said, well, why would you want to sell it? And I said, because I've, got, I've put a lot of money into time into this person, and it's, it's a lot of money. And he said, look, if you want to sell it to this guy, then I will work with you to get the deal done and we will get the deal done. And whatever I need to do, whether it's sell my shares, roll over my shares, I'll do it so that you get your money. But let me offer you an alternative. I will lend you 100 grand today um, that you pay me back when we sell the company, whether that's next year or in 10 years, in 20 years, it doesn't matter. Interest-free. Um, go away and think about it. So I was, I was thinking about it and... and one of the things that Mike Jackson asked me to do was a sales forecast. And I'd done the forecast and realized, if we carry on growing, this is going to be worth a lot of money. So I went back to uh, David. Lord Young said, yeah, I'll take that offer. Um, and then leaked to the press that Sage's ex-chairman had tried to buy us. <laughs> and it got back to me that he was kind of pissed off that, I think the words were, you wouldn't take my, my money, but you would take my name. I was like, yeah. But, but then later, I bumped into him again a few years later. And he said, no, I'd have done the same thing and kind of respect the entrepreneurial <laughs> spirit of it but yeah, i think um what's important for anybody in a similar situation to think about is during that time the you as an individual you wasn't loaded no absolutely so, not no i had a lot of credit card there and then you fast forward a few years I, I tried to sell the business um had an offer from a a dutch company called exact um and i I think the number was around six and a half million or something like that. It's a few years later, it grown a bit. It is, it is a good offer for what it was. I thought I'd got it as far as I could take it, so I, I was willing to take the offer. And I remember saying to their CEO, I accept the offer, but when we get into due diligence, when you're pouring over the details, if you try and chip away at the price and make it lower, by even a pound, I will walk away because you're at the bottom end of where I think this works. And I said, yep, fine. We got into the due diligence process. Um, we were... Going into it, we were two weeks before signing. We'd made an offer on a, on a house that had been accepted. We were thought we were going to negotiate, but they took my lowball <laughs> offer. I said, okay, great. So we've got a new house we're moving in, so I'm going to make millions. Uh, we're two weeks from signing, and we got what's called the SPA, the Share and Purchase Agreement. And I'm on the train on the way into London, and, and Rob, who was working as my CFO, called me and said, have you looked at clause 9.3? And I was like, I've looked at all the clauses. I mean, what's in 9.3? <laughs> 
Well, effectively, they're not chipping away at the price, but they will, the day you close, you will owe them half a million pound because there's some technical financial stuff they've done to reduce the price without reducing the price. So I got into the phone and said, look, this isn't going to work. Well, actually, no, I said to their advisors, this isn't going to work, we need to sort this out. Uh, they got a CEO on the phone and said, take it or leave it. So I said, all right, leave it. Kicked them out of the boardroom. So ultimately, I had the offer of six and a half million. I walked away from it, which was hard to do, but on principle, it was the right thing to do. A couple of weeks later, Lord Young is talking to his, his best friend, Natie Kirsch, who's a South African property billionaire. Uh, he was in the middle of buying um, Tower 42, the, the, the NatWest Tower in London at the time, and happened to mention this story. Um, and, and Nate said, well, why does Dwayne want to sell the business? Is it not going anywhere? And Lord Young said, well, no, it's got a great future, but he wants to get some money out personally he's worked hard and wants some liquidity so Nate said send him in to see me I want to have a chat with him now bear in mind at this point I probably spent a year actively trying to sell the company we had hundreds and hundreds of pages of contracts with this firm and the deal didn't work out I went and sat with Nate in his flat in London talked for 45 minutes and at the end of that we had half a side of A4 where I was a millionaire so he bought a million pounds off of shares off of me um, put some money into the company, but I still owned, the, between me and David, we owned the majority of the company still. So I got the liquidity so I could buy a nice house and, and, and provide for my family and still grow the business. So that was um, nice. I feel that's an important thing generally as well because if you've been just on the treadmill constantly trying to build a business up yeah. and what many people who don't run their own businesses might not see is the commitment, mm. financial commitment as well that a business founder puts in. The, they'll look after and um, you look after your team more than you look after yeah, yourself. Yeah, absolutely. For those you, first few years, and, and I'm sure you can relate to this, that the amount of effort you put in financially, if you look at your hourly rate, you'd have been better off flipping burgers at McDonald's for those yeah. two, three, four, five years, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but... He did eventually sell, mm. um, and Iris widely publicised. So we um, knock. Did they knock on the door? How did the um, that? Come yeah, from? they did. And by that point, because so this is the the key thing, right? Investors. I think the actuaries have changed a bit now, but back then certainly it was not normal for somebody in my position to take a million pound cash off the table um, and still be running the business. But it meant that when Iris came along with an offer, which is a bloody good offer, and it's more than double what we were looking at from the guys a year or two previously, um, I could look at it and go, that's a great offer, but no thanks, we're quite happy growing the business. Um, but I could only do that because I had the money from Nate that I was already financially secure at home. There was no pressing need to take the money out of the business. Um, so that meant I was in a very strong position negotiation-wise, and the price ended up going up and up until we got to a point where it felt like a no-brainer. But Lord Young was surprised at how much they did. Were he, right. Yeah, he, he was. He's, when we got to the number that I said, I'll accept that, he said, yeah, the thing is you've, you've overplayed your hand here. Uh, you're not going to get a deal done at this valuation. Won't happen. And it did. So <laughs> quite happy. And everyone was very happy. I mean, Nate, he more than tripled his money that he'd, he'd given me. Uh, David, uh, Lord Young got a very good return. I, yeah, all done very well from it. And Iris got a great business that actually fit in. It's almost when you look at Iris strategically, where they were at the time, 
this was almost tailor-made for them. It was a perfect fit for them. And that was the other thing was no one else was going to pay what they were paying because no one else had the strategic, uh, could justify the strategic premium that they could because of how well it fit for them. Yeah. So I didn't make it competitive and bring in other parties, which is what you're meant to do. Right. But if it's a perfect fit and you can see everything sort of falls together and everybody wants it to happen, there's no point. You, you yeah, and I could see that I could carry on working at this business for another two, three years. Um, and at that point, Iris owned a stake in Free Agent, one of our competitors. Yeah. Um, so Iris could have gone off and bought Free Agent instead. And two, three years, a, a rational valuation for the company would have been what Iris were offering to pay me today for the business uh, because of this, how will it fit? After you sold cash flow, uh, you didn't keep all the money yourself. Um, so the Pride of Britain uh, Awards was a clear sort of landmark and celebration and sort of it makes sense the Prince's Trust um, would like to, you know, show what can be achieved by investing in people and supporting people that, you know, as you said, you write a blog post, would you lend money to this, would you, you know, give money to this person? The, you donated to Prince's Trust? Uh, yeah, I, I'd got, so as I was just saying, it, I've got a lot of help along the way from specific people that gave me a lot of time um, and attention, but also dozens, if not hundreds of people that have done a very little bit, but at the right time, that, that uh, the cumulative effect of that was why I was successful. Um, and they'd all done that largely uh, via the Prince's Trust and the various programs they run. Um, so yeah, certainly felt obligated. Um, and I can still, it's, it's weird, you know, you have moments in your life where you can still picture them very clearly. And I can still picture the room I was sitting in and, and the desk I was sat at when I clicked the button to transfer the money to the Prince's Trust and, and this weird feeling I had. And I was always pride. And, yeah. I, and it, it, the fact that I could transfer six figures to the Prince's Trust without blinking, um, but to say thank you for the help I'd had. And, and, and I didn't realise it at the time, but Prince Charles now talks about it. And I was, I was the first to go from a, uh, a beneficiary of the trust, getting help, all the way through to being a patron of putting money back into the trust. So that was nice. UKBF um, was, I, I remember seeing, as I said, mentioned key one, surfacing on UKBF as key one. I remember seeing cash flow uh, developing on there with some of the questions you were speaking to some of the community on there. As a community, now one of the things, you you clearly are somebody who engages in a community, especially online community. Interface uh, was an online community yeah. that you was uh, very active, became involved in and saw you through very, very many years. Uh, UKBF, you uh, engaged and involved in that That's community. That's a good point. There. I've not really joined the dots before, but yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah. So the um, you're technically minded. Online community is very important. It's clear to me, reading some of your story, how useful Interface has been and the people you've, friends you made through there. Have you made uh, ongoing, established um, sort of friendships, relationships, business partnerships through UKBF being a, sort of the business focus? Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially in the early days. Um... Uh, the early days for me was that whole community was incredibly helpful so if I list people I know I'm going to forget some because there were so many <laughs> but we you, uh, Alan Alpha so these are all names you'll know right yeah. became my accountant 
And also, I'm, I'm a programmer building an accounting package. I knew nothing about accounting. <laughs> he was an accountant, so he gave me a lot of time and input uh, to help grow that. Uh, Andy at 10 years, and our yeah. PR. Jackie at Creacom, uh, yeah. done a lot of design for us. And uh, Ray, um, at Tin Soldier, uh, yeah. doing uh, SEO. And all of these, so yeah, the vast majority of our suppliers for a long time were from that community. Well, thank you very much for spending your time with us. Um, fantastic story. I'd recommend anybody to have a, a read of the book, especially anybody who's having a, uh, is struggling in their early part of their life and feels that things aren't going their way because it, it's, you've got a lot of grit and determination to get through this. And I, you know, I can generally say I am very chuffed for you for what you've achieved. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Remember to like, share and subscribe to help spread the stories of small businesses across the UK. Have you got a story to share? Reach out to us on ukbf.co.uk and you never know, you could be the next UKBF story.